Hello, my name is Theodore Gaspar. I'm the managing editor of the McGill International Review, and welcome to MIR Podcasts. In the United States, the first Republican debate took place at the beginning of August as candidates have started touring the country and appealing to voters in Iowa and New Hampshire, two key states in the early primaries. At the same time, Canada's Conservative Party has now had Pierre Poilievre at its helm for over a year, and he has taken the party in a much more conservative direction than Erin O'Toole, the party's leader during the 2021 elections. I sat down with Henry Olson, a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and a Washington Post columnist, to talk about the future of conservative movements in the United States and Canada. Henry Olson, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Thanks, Rick. So in, in today's discussion, I wanted to address a number of topics related to the GOP primaries and the broader conservative movement in North America. Um, and to get us started, uh, I wanted to talk about the recent Republican debate that happened in the primary. Uh, and just what are your general takeaways, any winners and losers that you've seen, or what kind of, what's what's your general takeaway? And also if you could address uh, what Trump's no-show means uh, on in general about for the primary yeah. process. Forward. Lots of different questions there. So let me uh, take the first, which is winners and losers. There was no clear winner and there was no clear loser. Uh, but I do think candidates helped themselves on the margin or hurt themselves on the margin. Uh, DeSantis and two of the snap polls uh, came out either first or second as assessment of winning the debate. Um, and I don't think he hurt himself at all. You know, he looked forceful. He gave the sort of answers that is consistent with his campaign strategy. And that's really what he needed. No bad reviews, some good reviews. Uh, so I'd say he's a somebody who was helped on the margin. Nikki Haley was, if anybody, the standout performer that uh, she had a very solid debate. And for people open to her brand of Republican politics, uh, it was a, a very attractive appearance. Uh, she apparently has gone up significantly in a number of polls, still trailing DeSantis by a lot and Trump by even more, but she's uh, apparently got a bit of a polling bounce and she's got a money bounce. She announced that uh, in the 72 hours after the debate, her campaign raised a million dollars online, which isn't Donald Trump territory, but is not chump change. Uh, so I'd say Haley had a good debate. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy uh, went both ways. He uh, love him or hate him. There are people who loved him and there are people who despised him. Uh, on the balance, since he was not as well known, that probably is a short-term gain. But I think uh, he offered a lot of red meat for people who might want to say, interesting, but not ready. Uh, so I think short-term gain, but long-term, not a good debate. And Tim Scott was somebody who just faded into the background. He was somebody who had a lot of buzz going into the debate. He was in some places third, in some places fourth, well ahead of Nikki Haley. And uh, he did not have a good debate, not because he made mistakes, but because he just didn't stand out either in his answers or his demeanors. And that's not a good sign for him. So then you asked about the Trump no-show. You know, at this point, it's not a real problem, but I will note that three national polls that poll either weekly or biweekly uh, have had him either declining or holding even in the post-debate poll compared with the pre-debate poll. Not enough to matter, but 
given that this was coming out at roughly the same time as the discussion about him turning himself in to the Georgia authorities for his indictment, um, clearly what happened with the debate and the no-show outweighed whatever positive bounce he got from the indictment. And that's a marginal hurt for him. And that's something he and his campaign will need to assess as these debates begin to pick up steam. So based on that, would you say that it's likely that he would show up at future debates if that would be more beneficial for him longer term? I don't think he will show up at the second debate. I think he's a stubborn man. Uh, It's at the Reagan Library. uh, And he's not going to want to draw the inevitable comparison uh, with Ronald Reagan. Uh, So I do not think he'll be there at the second debate. There is some chatter that the third debate will be in Alabama, which is a strong state for him, and that the RNC is hopeful he will come to the third debate. But my guess is he's going to see if he thinks he needs to. And if it's Donald Trump and the seven dwarves, I think he will stay away. But I do think he risks the longer he stays away, people beginning to think that maybe one of these other candidates is a better alternative because they seem to want the job. Okay. And so you've touched on uh, Nikki Haley and Ramaswamy's performance in the debates. I wanted to ask, I saw that they two had very different approaches when it came to dealing with Donald Trump and how um, Vivek Ramaswamy was much more willing to uh, talk highly of him and Nikki Haley was not in the Chris Christie or uh, kind of dismissal of him, but but still more skeptical of his, of his ability to, to be a president or as a viability as a candidate in general. So how what do you think are the benefits of these approaches for the, the candidates who are not completely against Trump, but also not completely on his side? Or how do so you... Think, yeah, so yeah. I think the question with Ramaswamy is you have to ask, is he running for president? Um, he is nominally running for president, but no one seriously thinks he's going to be the next president of the United States. If he seriously thinks that, I, have, I, I, I suggest he get the help that he needs. But if what you want to do is become a national figure and set yourself up for a run within the state, perhaps running for uh, governor of Ohio, because the Republican governors, I believe, termed out of office in 2026, then being known as a charismatic Trump mini-me is a good strategy for him because he would come out with some credibility and be able to parlay that in a national fundraising base into being a strong statewide candidate in Ohio. So viewed that way, Ramaswamy's strategy makes a lot of sense. Uh, The problem many Republicans have is that most Republican voters, somewhere around 70%, still have favorable impressions of Donald Trump. So in a format like a debate where you don't have time to make a point, really, you can only make headlines. It makes little sense to attack Donald Trump if you're serious about the nomination. It's one thing to say, as people like DeSantis or or Haley try to, which is praising Trump on the one hand, but saying it's time to move on on the other. That's at this point probably the best strategy for them because they need Trump favorable voters in order to win. Chris Christie's already viewed unfavorably by over 60% of Republicans. Chris Christie knows he is not going to be the Republican nominee. Uh, again, like with Ramaswamy, if he doesn't know that, um, I suggest he gets the help that he needs. But Chris Christie is making a, uh, a point and Chris Christie is 
reintroducing himself to a national sphere and who knows what he can do with the notoriety he gains by being Trump's worst nightmare. Uh, but for most Republicans, it is a very difficult phase of the campaign. At some point, somebody's going to need to contrast themselves with Donald Trump. But it's probably not now, four and a half months before the first vote, when whoever does that might hurt Trump, but not help themselves. And what about Mike Pence? So he was the one defending the administration throughout the debate, but when it, then when it came to addressing Trump personally, he was also had very harsh words for him. So, what do you think was he? What, what do you think about his performance? And I, I think Pence acquitted himself well. Uh, he showed more fire than he usually does. People were surprised at that. Um, but this is another reason why I don't think Donald Trump will be on a debate stage anytime soon. I don't think Donald Trump wants the one-on-one -on -one confrontation with Mike Pence because Mike Pence is known to be a man of character. Even people who don't particularly care for his politics will admit that this is a man who, if anything, is too righteous uh, as opposed to somebody who cuts corners. So if Donald Trump is on the same stage with Mike Pence, whoever is moderating is going to engineer a confrontation over January 6th. And I don't think Donald Trump wants that. So that leaves Mike Pence with his strongest card, which is I'm the conservative who stood up for justice um, without his foil. And I think he played that card about as well as he could without his foil. Uh, but at some point, I think he's also going to have to be very direct, which is to say, you know, look, um, I served Donald Trump. I wanted to win. The Democrats didn't always play fair, but the election was square. We lost because we lost, not because it was stolen. And the fact that Donald won't still admit that to himself and it tries to overthrow and suspend the Constitution to avoid dealing with the fact means he should never be in the White House. Um, at some point, Mike Pence is going to have to say the words he's been dancing around and teasing, but has thus far avoided delivering in a succinct, clear and a uh, very harmful manner to Donald Trump. What has been said about that, though, is if he does say it, then his campaign is completely over. Um, would Does Mike Pence have a path to the nomination at all, unless he takes a clear stance, or, this, or if he doesn't, that's his more, like, well, how does this help him in the longer term? Well, this, is, this is the question, again. I don't think Mike Pence is going to be the nominee. Um, he is more favorably thought of than Chris Christie. Um, he's got about 50-something percent of Republicans who have a favorable impression, but he has over 30% who don't like him. And these are, many of them are the Trump loyalists who think that he betrayed their man on January 6th by standing up to Donald Trump's pressure. Uh, and I think that if he were to emerge and somehow Trump were to be knocked down, that they would swing behind anybody but Pence. So Pence has a, a facial path to the nomination, but I don't think a real one. And at some point, I think Mike Pence is going to have to realize that his role in this race is to be the man who sunk the SS Trump, not to be the man who stands on the stage being the Republican nominee. That's an incredibly hard thing for somebody who's wanted to be president for decades to admit to himself. And I suspect Mike Pence won't do that in September. Um, but the fact is, if he's ever gets on the debate stage with Donald Trump, that confrontation is going to happen. 
And if he actually wants to be the president, at that moment, the same path between taking down Trump and becoming the person who can convince Republicans to be the nominee uh, is identical. And he's just going to have to have a huge roll of the dice and see what happens, because if he avoids it, he doesn't accomplish either goal. And moving a bit beyond the debate itself, um, in your piece about Iowa that was published in the Post yesterday, you discussed Donald Trump's weakness in the state. Could you briefly discuss your argument about evangelical voters? And if based yeah. on that, what so can- let's not say that Trump is weak, let's say he has a potential weakness, yes. because all the polls say he's a hit. All the polls say he does well with evangelical voters. But there are two types of evangelical voters. There are the people who are evangelicals culturally, but don't go to church. And there are those who are very serious about it. You can go to church once or in many uh, denominations more than once a week. They're going to different types of services. It's this latter group that didn't like him in 2016, um, has always had qualms about his character. And when I was in Iowa, I went and tried to talk to as many as I could find. And I couldn't find a single person who said, yeah, I'm for Donald Trump. They all said that if he were the nominee, they would vote. They wouldn't be crazy about it, but they disliked and feared Democrats and President Biden so much, they would swallow their concerns and back Trump to hold back uh, what they view as the greater enemy. But I think what they're doing, a good number of them, is trying to decide, do they think that somebody else both meets their test on character and issues and is strong enough to beat both Trump and Biden. Um, so I think that I think there's an opportunity for somebody to make that sale. I'm not saying that they will, but I think there are church-going evangelicals are looking around saying, can we do better? And if by Thanksgiving, a lot of them think they can do better, then you will have seen the polls close. And if by Thanksgiving, they've looked around and said, everyone is super flawed, might as well stick with the guy who uh, who has already been in the line of fire, uh, then I think Trump will have the nomination, uh, well, have Iowa locked up and probably the nomination. If he isn't held close in Iowa, I don't think he's going to be held close in the other early states. And who would you say of the other Republican candidates has the best chance at exploiting this potential weakness? Well, right now, the only one that seems up to it is Ron DeSantis. He's got a strong Iowa credibility. He's got a strong Iowa network. Um, I ran into, in one of my interviews, a person just happened to say that his house had been visited by door knockers in August. You know, that's a sign of a well-organized campaign that they're already out door-to-door canvassing for potential support. No other campaign that I know of is doing that in Iowa yet. Uh, they may be they, they will plan to be doing it later in the year, but the fact that DeSantis is doing it now is a sign in his favor. You know, Tim Scott would like to be that person, but this gets to be where the debate is difficult for him, is that people who watch the debate are not going to be enamored of his performance. And right now, uh, he doesn't have the ground operation in Iowa that DeSantis does. You know, I couldn't find an evangelical who said they were for Scott. They were all interested in Scott. They were intrigued by Scott, but no one was willing to say they're for him yet. Uh, so he, he's somebody who has a shot at it, but um, hasn't yet really developed the momentum to be at, in the same league as DeSantis on that.
And more broadly about, about the campaign, what would you say are the key issues right now or going forward will become bigger issues in more in terms of policy in this campaign? Uh, and what Or is that at all a factor in, in this upcoming uh, Republican primary? You know, policy is a factor, uh, but the fact is most of the candidates know where Republican voters are and most of them are uh, adopting some variation of the same things. Republicans want the southern border under control. So you have kind of a competition for who's more macho about controlling the border. You know, I'm going to beef up border agents. Well, I'm going to send the military south of the border. Well, I'm going to do this. Um, just be glad they're not coming across your border. Um, who wants to have Marines in Winnipeg uh, chasing down illegal immigrants? Um, if you believe the Republicans, that would be what you would have happening in Mexico. But um, foreign policy is shaping up to be a place of real division. And that's because the party is divided. That You look at polls and a slim majority of Republicans seem to say that they would, uh, while they don't want Russia to win in Ukraine, they don't want to continue to fund the Ukrainian military at the rate that Joe Biden is, whereas about 40% do. So when you have a divided party, what you're seeing is a division among the candidates where Haley and Pence are on one end of pro-Ukraine and Vivek and Christie and Vivek Ramaswamy is on the other end and uh, DeSantis and uh, Scott are somewhere in the middle. Um, so I think that's one fruitful ground for genuine debate and discussion uh, on something that people do care about. It's not as important as some other issues, but it is something that people care about. Most other issues, the candidates have little to no difference uh, between them. And so uh, they're all gaining credibility with voters by offering policies that uh, endorse the goals that super majorities of Republicans want. And what about the cultural questions that they've talked? So they talked about abortion, they talked in the debate, but also in the campaign, this is something that sometimes comes up. Uh, but in general, so uh, some candidates are more willing to engage in rhetoric that is like the war on woke or or that kind of uh, rhetoric. So do you see this kind of culture question continue to be important going forward for the primary, but also broadly for, for Republicans in general? Are well, the yeah, issues that are going to continue to matter? There's a very large group of Republicans who are very scared about uh, the culture. And DeSantis is somebody who is taking that head on. I think he is toning that down a little bit because he's finding that it's something that may be shared across the board, but is only intensely important to a minority. Um, but there's no, when you look at the sorts of cultural issues that um, are new in the Republican and in the American debate, um, all the candidates tend to share, they don't want to have 15-year-olds uh, undergo uh, um, gender reassignment surgery. They don't want to have trans men competing in women's sports. They don't want to have critical race theory uh, taught in public schools. There's no disagreement there. Um, there is a slight disagreement on the degree to which the government ought to be involved in regulating private conduct, where DeSantis uh, made some name for himself by going after Disney, uh, after Disney, uh, Disney has some special advantages that the legislature has conferred upon them in the past. And DeSantis is trying to revoke that uh, in part because of their positions on some cultural issues. 
And Nikki Haley has indicated that that's not a move that she would be, you know, not supporting the positions that Disney has taken, but you know, basically saying that that's not a position that business uh, and government ought to be involved. Government ought to be involved in. Um, but so far, because she's been behind, that hasn't become a point of contention. I suspect that if she were to become someone nipping on the heels of Ron DeSantis for second place, that their differences on this and other issues will become important. Haley has also signaled a more moderate tone on abortion, not that she's not a conservative, but what she's signaling is that, look, as president of the United States, it's different than being a governor. We've got to work on national consensus. We don't need to compete for uh, who's the most pro-life and promoting positions that can't possibly gain national consensus. And that's something that independents who lean Republican like to hear. It's not something that the most ardent pro-life Republicans want to hear. Uh, but again, Haley knows her audience and uh, she's carefully drawing a distinction with some of the other candidates on that issue. Yes, to, to, to me, that sounded a lot like a much more general election oriented answer than, than a primary oriented answer. Do you think those kind of answers could get her in trouble in the short term, even if they could be perhaps beneficial when it comes to the general election? Well, you know, the thing is that when you're running in a primary, um, the first thing you have to do is get winnowed in uh, when you've got multiple candidates. Uh, there's a saying that there's only three tickets out of Iowa, which means you have to finish first, second or third. Uh, and not finish third, 30 points in back of the leader, um, which means you need to have somebody get excited about you. If Nikki Haley understands the Republican Party, and I think she does, she knows she's never going to be the number one fan. You know, there's a certain segment of the party that as long as Donald Trump is in the race, they're going to go for Donald Trump. And then you've got another lane of the Trump adjacent people, people who were very happy for voting for Donald Trump, but could vote for somebody else. Nikki Haley's never going to be their number one choice. They may like her, they may be okay with her, but they're never going to get out of bed in the middle of January and say, you know, there's three inches of snow on the ground and there's more reports that snow will come down tonight, but I'm going to go to the caucus for Nikki Haley because she's Donald Trump's person. Who's the person who will do that? It's the person who is more moderate. It's the person who is more of an old establishment Republican, a person who looks over at the Trump years and say, well, to the extent they were a replay of the Reagan years, I'm for. To the extent they weren't, I'm against it. That's Haley's lane. So in that sense, her general election and her primary strategies converge. Now, query whether or not that's enough to get her the nomination, but you can't even think about the nomination until you get winnowed in. And she understands how she's going to get winnowed in. You've mentioned briefly that like as long as Trump is in the race, so I haven't brought it up yet, but about the indictments or about anything that's going on with Trump right now, do you think there's any situation where he doesn't stay in the race until the very end? Yeah, you know, so I'm, I'm never a person who likes to give 100% assurances. Um, I can imagine a circumstance where Donald Trump decides that the demands on his time and the demands on his pocketbook are so great that he can't stay in the race. Um, realistically, the moment to make that decision is if he's planning to endorse somebody else is the middle of November, because after that point, filing deadlines to get your names on the ballot uh, start to come up. This isn't like Canada where pretty much uh, nominees can be nominated in a 
the last couple of you know few weeks before the election after the writs drop and you print up the ballots really quickly in america you have months ahead of time particularly because of the early voting but you know so, so for races in march people are irrevocably committing to be in the ballot on the ballot in december so at some point between the mid-November and mid-December, enough of those states have passed that Donald Trump will either be or not be on the ballot. Um, I think it's like 98% likely that Donald Trump will be in it to the very end. But I think there's still a 2% chance that Donald Trump will look and say, I'd rather not go to jail. And... Um, figure out some way to continue to have political influence while he keeps himself out of jail. Okay, thank you. Uh, and yes, yeah, so I would like to make a, uh, our conversation shift towards uh, some Canadian issues as well. So the Conservative Party of Canada has a new leader now, is Pierre Poilievre, who's been there for more than a year now. Um, and he has shown a very different rhetoric than previous Conservative leaders since uh, Stephen Harper. Um, many in Canada have said that this is influenced in some way by uh, the rise of the right wing within Canada as well, but influenced in style for the rise of far right Republicans in the U.S. Uh, where do you stand on this? Is Pierre Poilievre of that brand of conservatism that is used to be more common or in, in the U.S. than it was in Canada, at least at such high levels? Or how do you broad, broadly explain the general, in general, the rise of, of Pierre Poilievre and the similarities with similar characters in the U.S.? I think, think Poilievre correctly reads the tenor of the times, which is that some there is a segment of conservatives in every country in the world that is angry at what is going on culturally, that is angry at what is going on economically and feel that the world is coming to an end you know their world is coming to an end and they gravitate to people who echo those concerns and those that tone and so you've seen maxime bernier and the ppc rise um in part because bernier and his party were willing to in some way echo that um the influence of their uh, vote in the last federal election can be overstated you know, certainly, had they not existed, the CPC would not have won the plurality of seats. But you know, when, when you're looking and you're saying that you know, somewhere between 10 and 20 seats were theoretically decided by the PPC's uh, vote, um, you just can't think about becoming a majority party and not get at least a significant share of that back. And so that's job one for Polyev. And he also, you know, if he's smart, he's also looking over and saying, look, you have other populist elements that have popped up. You had, you know, the, the, the New Brunswick populists that had their moment in the sun. You have uh, the destruction of the Parti Québécois by the CAC, uh, which is not quite the same thing, but a version of it. You have Doug Ford in Ontario, who um, not only had a more populist, although a lighter approach than you know, previous Tory leaders in the Ontario election, but he, too, had split us. He had Blue Ontario or New Blue and um, the Ontario Party that did, you know, got about 4% of the vote, better in conservative rural writings, which was, again, the same sort of person. You just see that and you say, OK, if I want to win a national election on the right, I need to unite the right in some way. So that's in that exactly what Polyev needs to do. 
And he's also, I think, done an increasingly decent job at reaching out to the sort of voters who have gravitated to populism elsewhere, the sort of manual laborers, uh, low to moderate skilled, low to moderate formal education voters who used to be very happy in a labor-based social democratic party, but no longer feel represented by them. The sort of people who live in Windsor, the sort of people who live in Northern Ontario, the sort of people who vote for the NDP in rural uh, British Columbia, you know, not the sort who vote for them in Victoria or Burnaby, but the sort that might vote for them, you know, up in the Bulkley, you know, Skeena Bulkley Valley in that area. Um, and this, so you're beginning to see him adopting a Canadian version of what a strategy that has proven successful in most places in the world. And it'll be interesting to see whether it'll continue. And there's no need for a federal election for a couple of years um, with the NDP not polling as well. There's no reason for them to pull out support from Trudeau. So, um, but so far so good for Poirier. And in terms of the rise of, uh, conservative support uh do you think that comes more at the expense of the far-right parties or is there just some general frustration with the trudeau government and therefore he might be pulling some trudeau opposition from the left as well um or how do you explain his rise in the polls i think clearly he cannot have you know there are polls that have had them 12 or 13 points ahead now um you can't go from 31 to 41 by uh, canceling out the five percent of the vote that the PPC got last time, um, you know there there is some evidence in some of the polls that some of these NDP voters are coming around. Again, probably not the NDP voters who are educated and you know the sort that that, that vote in uh, the condo belt in um, uh, Toronto, uh, where you have the, the liberal NDP battles over who's more left wing, but you know the sort of person. In Windsor, the sort of person in Timmins, the sort of person um, in in the rural areas who, you know, are labor union people, and they don't like, they know that this green stuff is going to put them out of job, out of could put them out of work. Uh, so there's evidence that that's working. He's clearly cut into the PPC's support, um, and and then I think you've also got a general frustration uh, that you, you clearly he's cutting into some support in the 905 belt as well. Um, yeah, suburban um, Vancouver, suburban Winnipeg seems to be peculiarly resistant to uh, CPC charms, but uh, you know, the last um, 338 Canada uh, review that I looked at in the Main Street research uh, uh, writing analysis showed that you know, suburban Vancouver, Northern Vancouver Island, uh, Mississauga, Brampton, all these areas are seeing support, uh, uptick in support for the CPC, and that's a sign of all of these things coalescing into a uh, into a moment. And um, I was also curious on your takes on there's been recent attempts by the Conservative Party Canada to change rhetoric a little bit to tone it down from the leadership race to some extent. Do you think that is part of the effort to 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 get this NDP kind of support as well, instead is not maybe as radical or? As... Yeah, well, yeah. Every party that seeks to govern has to be a broad coalition, which means you have to have an element that excites one group, has to have an element that excites another group. You know, one of the problems that you have is when you're not thinking in that way, so you're always doubling down either 
in one way. So you have to be populist enough so that the angry right winger says enough of them say, okay, this person can be trusted, but not so typecast in that, that you can't attract other types of voters. You know, I, I was not a fan of the most recent ad that the CPC has put up, which, try, which has Kualiev's um, wife talking about what a great family man he is and so forth. I thought it was not as persuasive and well done as it could have been, but it shows an indication that they understand that uh, he needs to appeal to more than disappointed Bernier and new blue voters in order to be the majority. Uh, and that means having a multifaceted message. One thing I do note, though, is he's not making Aaron O'Toole's mistake, where Aaron O'Toole basically tried to become Trudeau light in the debate. And it was from that moment when you could see, you know, that he was so focused on trying to win back Oakville and Burlington and Vaughan and so forth by being Trudeau light, that that's when the CPC's momentum stopped and the PPC started taking off because he didn't convince suburban voters that he was sincere about that. And some of the right wingers said, hey, he's not with us. Um, Kualiev is not doing an Aaron O'Toole on this. So that, like I say, it's not a shift in a message. It's a multifaceted message that reinforces uh, the earlier message. Um, and as a last question, that what I would like to address is, even though an election is probably for, far away, um, based on current polls, it doesn't look like anybody would be able to get an outright majority unless something were to drastically change or, or the trend lines were to continue far enough down the line. Um, do you think that if the conservatives would get um, a plurality but not a majority, there is any willingness from any of the other parties to prop them up? Or would we see an attempt similar to what has happened uh, a decade ago uh, against or attempts at what were happened against Stephen Harper? Or do you think that, well, how, how do you see that play out? Yeah, well, you see, and this is where uh, the role of uh, the PQ comes in is that uh, it's not clear uh, where uh, they would fall. I'm uh, uh, on the uh, 338 Canada side trying to find uh, the actual seat projections that they have um, as we speak. And um, I'm just trying to count up that they've, that, you know, right now, 338 Canada um, has... Uh, Let's see. Well, it's close to a majority. They've got 70. The, the Tories picking up 70 seats in Ontario and picking up um, 14 in Atlantic Canada. Um, so uh, you there, there's no majority right now where the CPC has a 10-point lead in the average for a resumption of the two-party line. I think... If that falls back and you have LPC and NDP can again form a majority, I think they will. I think it's quite clear that whether it's in each of their party's interests or not, and you know, it, I think under a different NDP leader, the LPC could rue the day they did that because they clearly have been getting a number of votes from committed uh, center-left to left-wing voters who vote for them to keep the Tories out. And if they know that there's going to be a permanent coalition, why not strengthen 
vote with their heart rather than with their head. <laughs> but um, that's not what seems to be going on under the Singh Premier uh, leadership. So, you know, if if it's LPC plus NBD, yes, they will form a coalition. But it's very difficult to see that happening, uh, given the strength of, of the BQ, that if they're going to get 20 to 30 seats and the CPC is going to get over 140, particularly on the new maps, which will slightly enhance conservative uh, strength at the, uh, if you believe, Eric Renier, um, it's, just, you know, it's just very difficult to see where um, the two-party alliance can come back up. And then the question is, what will the BQ do? Well, here in they're, Quebec, they're going to have to be responsible, you know, which is to say, you know, they're going to have to either support the CPC or they're going to have to cut a deal on the left. And that they've never had been in that position before. And so I just don't think I, as an American, uh, despite the fact that I geek out on Canadian politics more than most people south of the, of the border, um, I, I won't even venture a guess. On, on what Gilles Duceppe and uh, his uh, 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 and his bloc will do when presented with that opportunity. Well, here what's being talked a lot about, though I don't know how much of this actual strategy and how much this is just punditry, uh, is that uh, the, the, the CPC is still broadly unpopular in Quebec outside of the Quebec City area, and that that would be political suicide in long term for the bloc to do back up something like that. But this is all just speculation at the moment. So so the, I, I cannot give a better answer myself. From Yeah, well, and then you get the question is, you know, at some point you have to ask yourself, what point does the BQ have? I mean, I've had this fantasy for the last year and a half is that, you know, why you know, the BQ grew out of the PQ. Why doesn't um, uh, Legault create a federal version of the CAP to say, look, we're moving into a range where Quebec can actually make a difference. Uh, we want somebody who can actually negotiate on behalf of Quebecois in Quebec's interest, as opposed to these crazy separatists who can't cut a deal with anybody. Uh, there's no indication that he uh, would uh, is doing that, but you know that would be the sort of thing that I would think that somebody who really wants to enhance Quebec's status as a nation within Canada would eventually find he would have to do. There's only so much you can get by being a, a provincial premier with no voice in Ottawa. This was the MIR podcast with Henry Olson. The McGill International Review will continue to keep a close look at the presidential race in the U.S. as it unfolds and how the CPC will perform in Canada going forward. This was Theodore and thank you for listening.